You can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's the text that we're in this morning, and I'm glad you're here this morning and glad we get to look at God's Word together, and He's going to teach us so much in a very simple and straightforward text, not simple in that it's not deep and profound, but simple in that it's easy to understand. And as all God's word is, we can understand it and we can be changed by it. And that's my prayer for you this morning. And so let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 12 through 22. That's the larger section that we're in, uh, verses 12 through 22 of chapter 5. And then we're going to look specifically at verses 14 through 15 this morning. But let's read all of it. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every evil or from evil. So what we're seeing here in this passage of Scripture, as we've stated the past couple of weeks, is a series of exhortations. It's a series of exhortations, a list of encouragements and instructions. It's a series of admonishments and uh, helpful instruction from the Apostle Paul to this church. Um, Paul here is kind of just rambling off everything that he needs to say, wants to say to this church at the end of this letter. He's covered so much material so far. He's been extremely helpful to them. And on his way out, uh, as he rounds uh, home, uh, third base and heads towards home, he is uh, shooting off everything that he needs to say to this church in order for them to be everything that they should be in Christ. And so it's a series of exhortations for this church to grow into everything that God wants it to be. And so this is a helpful thing for them. It's a list of final and pointed and brief urgings for this church. And so I've entitled the entire series, so to speak, on this section, Ecclesiastical Exhortations. Ecclesiastical exhortations, because that's what this is. These are exhortations to the church. And in verses 14 through 15, which is what we're going to cover this morning, uh, Paul is going to exhort this church in something specific. And specifically, it is how the church is to relate to one another. So specifically, this 
title for this particular message is the church's relationship with one another. So this whole section, a list of encouragements for this church, exhortations. He started with, if you remember in verses 12 through 13, how the church is to relate to its leaders how the church is to relate to its leaders. If you weren't in here for those messages about how the church is to relate to its leaders, you need to go back and listen to those last couple of messages and so that you can uh, kind of track with what Paul is saying and you might even need it for your own heart and for your own spirit and for your own soul. You need to go back and listen to those. Verses 12 through 13, that's what Paul instructed the church in. How is this church and all churches to relate to its leaders? Secondly, now Paul moves into these relationships between the church members, how the church is to interact with one another. And then as we move into the last section of this entire uh, uh, section here, portion of scripture here, we'll see the church's responsibilities and attitudes corporately and individually, just how they relate to God and who are they to be as, as people. So again, 12 through 13, the church's relationship with its leaders, 14 through 15, the relationship with one another, and 16 through 22, the individual responsibilities or corporate responsibilities. So after asking this church to relate to its leaders in the way that God intends, Paul now clearly moves to how this church is to deal with one another. How it's to deal with one another and though this church is a true church, remember in the beginning in chapter one, he, he spends a lot of time articulating why he knows this church is a true church. In other words, that this is a group of believers who have been saved by God, who have been chosen by God, who have been elect, and then God affected his salvation in their lives. So he knows that this is a true church. Paul knows that this is a growing church. He's encouraged them repeatedly, remember, just as you are doing. They're doing great. They're walking with the Lord. He's encouraging them in this. And Paul has also communicated that they're applying what he's taught them. I mean, they're constantly applying what he's taught them. He says, I have no need to write to you about such and such because you're doing it, right? And so Paul notes here that this church is really growing, really thriving. And Paul even said repeatedly how great they're doing. But Paul wants them to continue to grow. Paul wants them to continue to grow into all that God wants them to be. He has more divine instructions for them. He has a desire for them to apply all of these instructions to their lives individually and corporately so they can become everything that God desires them to be as a church. Naturally, we won't know what to do. And naturally, we won't know how to handle everything because of our limited understanding and our sinful natures. So Paul's gonna instruct them. And by the way, these are divine instructions. Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing God's very words. So we can't reject these words, neither can this church. And so these are great instructions and they need to imply, uh, apply these instructions to their lives and to the church. So these might be by way of reminder, maybe he's already taught them these things. Or these might be a way, by way of new instructions. Uh, they, maybe he's never taught them these things. 
But Paul is giving this series of exhortations so that they become everything that Christ wants them to be. They are his redeemed people. They're Christ's redeemed people. Christ saves people through the gospel of Jesus Christ and then grows them into Christ-likeness. And the church is his, uh, is his bride, is his people gathered together who help build one another up into everything that God wants them to be. And so he's got to instruct them in this area. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to be effective. He, he wants them to effectively reach the lost. He, he wants them to be healthy and holy and Christ-like and growing. And Paul isn't concerned about numerical growth. If you notice that, in fact, that's never a topic of discussion for him. Numerical growth all too often is the discussion of the church. And and Paul doesn't talk about that. Uh, um, It excites me. For instance, right now, our new members class is the biggest class that we've ever had in the history of this church. But you know why that excites me? The numbers mean nothing except the fact that you have a whole group of people who for the next seven weeks will understand deeply more of the word of God and what it means to be his people in his church. That's why that's important. It's not numbers for numbers sake. And so Paul isn't concerned with the breath here. He's concerned with the depth and he trusts God with the breath. God will do his work and his people as long as he teaches deeply what the church is to be. And so this is Paul hoping that they have a sincere and genuine faith over time, a Christ-likeness, a holiness, an effectiveness, a, a desire to build one another up. He's concerned with their maturity. He's concerned with equipping them. In other words, he's concerned with their sanctification. And that's what he's going to say in just a few verses as we move into the next section. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's been his desire for these people. And so he's concerned with the depth of these people's growth. And all too often, there are people who won't grow. I'm just like this. This is how I've been. This is how I deal with things. This is my attitude. Uh, That doesn't work. Right? God instructs us. And anything else but abiding by God's instructions would be disobedience. And so Paul here is also trusting that they're going to obey his words. And this is for Christ's church to grow and be effective to build one another up. And so here's what Paul is going to help them with. This is for the church and how they are to relate to one another. While its leaders teach, as we saw just a few verses ago, while the leaders shepherd and oversee and govern and set the example, here's what the church must do. Listen now, the church must help each other grow. The church must teach each other. They must initiate relationships with each other. They must counsel one another. The church must evangelize together. They must show hospitality to one another. They must reprove, rebuke, and exhort one another. They must care for one another. They must provide for the needs of each other. And the list goes on. God wants a spiritually strong church. He, he wants a church that will stand firm on the word. He, he wants a church that will remain loyal to each other and to him. He wants a church who will advance the gospel. He wants a church that is strong and stable and take risks, takes risk and is holy. And he wants this with longevity 
because it's effective and it's God honoring. And the way in which this will happen is when the members of the church relate to each other in the way in which God intends. He's spoken how a healthy church comes about through the relationship of the church and its leaders. And now he's saying, I want this church to be strong and effective and healthy and stable with longevity. And the way in which this is going to happen for the glory of God is if the church relates to one another in the way that God intends. This is his point here. And so now as Paul chooses to cover this, he specifically addresses how the church should deal with problem people. Now, listen, we all have problems and God knows our frame and all of us are sincerely trying, most of us. But it is true, nevertheless, that the constant and consistent problems that some face within the church prevent the church from growing, prevent the church from being strong, prevent the church from being healthy, prevent the church from being stable, prevent the church from being impactful and effective. They prevent it from exhibiting strong faith and from taking risks and from withstanding the enemy's attacks and from being healthy and from lasting. The problem, people, is what Paul is saying will prevent it from being effectively uh, effective to reach the world and stand against the schemes of the world. Problems allow for sin. Uh, problems allow for inactivity. Uh, problems allowed for gossip and for disunity. Problems allow for a lack of commitment and, and a discouragement and a doubt and, and a fear and a, and a, a, a paralyzation. Uh, problems result in nothing beneficial for the individual believer or for the glory of God or for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so it's not that God isn't compassionate. We all have problems, including me. But what Paul is saying here is we need to help the people with the problems so that we can become a spiritually strong and effective church. Because if you notice, if you look down at the issues that he addresses here, he addresses in verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Those are the idle or the unruly. And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted, those who are faint-hearted. Help the weak, those are who are weak. Be patient with them all. Some require a lot of what? Patience. And then there's those who do evil, and how do we respond to those who do evil. And so he's not saying, hey, here's how you deal with those who are super healthy, effective, and growing. Right? He's saying, here's how you deal with the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, the stagnant, and the unloving. And so Paul here is helping the church to grow spiritually strong because he wants them to be consistent, healthy, effective, with longevity. He wants there to be joy and peace and mission and growth. You all know, listen, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way, right? It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Paul said that he was weak, right? But in his weakness, it actually proved to be strength because in God's providence and in his suffering, as he confessed his own human weaknesses, 
he was still content and glad because it drove him to trust God more deeply, depend on God uh, more deeply, and even the Lord to work through him more powerfully. It wasn't a sinful weakness. It was a faith-filled man in spite of his human weakness. And so God is compassionate to those who are weak, but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to grow in the Lord and to be strong and healthy in the Lord and to be effective for his kingdom. And to be that, the believers must take responsibility for each other to help strengthen one another, to build one another up. The believers are the ones who make each other that way. And so here's the question as we get into it. Are you spiritually strong? Are you spiritually healthy? Are you committed? Because if not, you're not able to help others to be strong and to be stable and to be healthy and to be committed. You're actually in the category of the ones who need to be helped. And so you need to be one who is healthy. And then are you doing your job to help others who are not? Are you doing your job to help others who are not strong, who, who are not healthy, who are not growing, and who are not obeying? Um, the issue is that the care comes from the community, right? If someone is not feeling cared for, the issue is who's around you that needs to be caring for you, and it's our responsibility as believers in the church to do that. The community aspect. Our believers have to take initiative to just call people, check on them, care for them, spend time with them, encourage them. That's the believers' responsibilities in the church to build one another up in the Lord. And so if you notice here, as I said, Paul only teaches how the church how to deal with, with issues because he wants them to be strong and healthy. This is what he wants for Christ's redeemed people. So as we get into it, Paul is going to deal with how this church is supposed to deal with, number one, the unruly in verse 14. Number two, the faint-hearted in verse 14. Number three, the weak in verse 14. Number four, the stagnant in verse 14. And number five, the unloving in verse 15. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Paul is telling the church how they are to deal with these people so that this church can grow and be strong. And I uh, put up there part 2A because this is part one was dealing with the leaders and I did that in two messages. And I'll take this in two messages as well. So I'll, we'll deal with one and two, the unruly and the faint-hearted this morning. We'll cover the next three next week. But what's wonderful about this is that this is very practical. I mean, he's giving one-word summaries for the issues, and he's giving one-word summaries for how to deal with it. I mean, you can just create a list and just say, okay, for the members in the church, when I face this, I do this. And when I face that, I do that, right? It's extremely practical. Okay, so this should tell you and encourage you and help you understand how to deal with those who are in the church. Remember, the goal is a, a long-term, healthy, stable, strong, effective body of Christ who is 
who is not uh, thrown off by the world, who stands on the truth, who reaches the world, and who is healthy, a bride that is radiant and blessed by the Lord. Uh, That's the goal, and that's what Paul wants for them, Paul wants for us. And so uh, as we get into this, before we get into the first one, which is the unruly, let's just move into the text, okay? So look at verse 14, okay? Paul says this, and we urge you, brothers. So after finishing the words to the church, the brothers again, up in verse 12, about how they're to relate to their leaders, which we know who the leaders are of the brothers. They're the elders, the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers. He gives another appeal here. Okay, he gives another appeal here, and this kind of signifies a slight change in subject. He's still in the same vein of thought, but he's given a slight change in subject here because he says, he, he said in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, and gave some instruction. And now in verse 14, he says, and, and we urge you, brothers, and then he gives some more instruction. And so he's slightly changing the subject here. He, he's initiating a new idea, and yet it's still within the realm of what he's been talking about. And so he says in verse 14, and we, who's we? Well, it's Paul, it's Silas, and it's who? Who? Timothy, we. These are the people who are writing to you. Remember? Sometimes when I say that, I hear this. And I don't know what it means. But you already know who's here. It's Paul, it's Silas, and it's Timothy, right? If you go back to chapter one, verse one, how do we know who we are? Well, it just says that chapter one, verse one, Paul, Silvanus, who is Silas, and who? Timothy. So that's who's speaking here. He's saying we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, we're the ones who are writing to you, and we're the ones who want you to do this. And so in other words, listen now, this is coming from the authority of God's chosen apostle, God's chosen apostle, and from God's chosen fellow ministers, okay? So these are those whom God has chosen, and especially the one who has been chosen to write the word of God. So these words, in other words, are authoritative, right? There's no getting around this. Like, let me think, I'll go back home, I'll contemplate what was said, and see if I want to obey, and if I'm going to apply that to my life or not, okay? These are inspired divine words of God. And so what does he say here? We urge, we urge. It's a strong appeal. It's a soft command. It is, it is more um, pointed than ask, which was up in verse 12, right? It, it's, it's extremely pointed. And I understand almost in a sense why in verse 12 he appeals with a a soft heart because he's one of the leaders and he's helping them to relate to the leaders how they should. And so he's got to do that in such a way that helps them to understand why it's important and feel loved while he's doing it. But in verse 14 here, this is how they are to relate to one another. Uh, I mean, there's no holds, uh, no, uh, 
holds barred here. It's, this, is, this is what he's going to tell them to do. In fact, all of these instructions and how they are to respond will be an imperative form. They're all going to be commands. These are not suggestions. And up above, they're in, the, in 12 and 13, it's in the infinitive form. To do this, to do that. And here in all of these, in verses 12, uh, 14 through 15, all the instructions are in imperative form, meaning they're commands, right? So the, he, he is speaking very strongly here, but he is appealing to them strongly. He did this in chapter four, verse one. Just look, at, just look back a little bit. Look at chapter four, verse one. He says, finally then, brothers, we what? We ask and what? Urge you. He did the same thing here. He's asked and he's urged, right? That you uh, ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he does so again in verse 10. Look at chapter four, verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we what? Urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. He wants them to grow. He wants them to grow. So this is a zealous encouragement, a zealous encouragement. And who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to the brothers, the brethren, right? He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the believers in Christ. Uh, that's clear. He's speaking to the children of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the children of God. Don't you know who you are? You're a child of God and you have brothers and sisters in Christ. And this family called the church is to interact with one another in a certain way, right? And so here, this is the responsibility of the church. That's what he's saying up until this point. Of course, this will be what he instructs, the elders' responsibilities as well. But Paul is making it known here that the believers in the church are to do this for each other if the church is to be what God wants it to be. And you must do this with others. It is very difficult today to motivate people to live like this because our lives have become so individualized, haven't they? We go home, we shut the door, and we're in our, our castle as a book that we read, our, our, our Bible study on Wednesday morning is, is reading a book on biblical manhood, and, and, uh, and it speaks of the men just going to their castle and drawing up the drawbridge, and they got the moat around the castle, and once they're inside, that's it, right? They don't even know their neighbors anymore. And, and that's not how we can live. You can't live an individualistic lifestyle in the local church and expect the church to grow, be healthy and effective. You just can't. And you can't expect yourself to grow and to be effective and to be healthy. This is the responsibility of the church to each other, to each other. You must do this with others. You, 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 you must do this with others if this church is to be everything that God wants it to be. If it's to become what God wants it to be. If it is to be effective as God wants it to be and healthy and stable and strong. And so this begins with this instruction here about the unruly. 
And so again, these one word summaries, these one word responses, very practical, very straightforward. And it's for the fellow members to live like. So first, after he urges these brothers, he gives the first category here. And it's dealing with, he, put the, he puts here in the ESV, the idol. And I'm labeling it as the unruly. And so, because that's, that's, what it's more easy, that's what it's more regularly translated as. And I'll explain to you what this means here. So first, how to deal with the unruly. And we're just gonna cover these first two, the unruly and the faint-hearted. So Paul says here, admonish the idol. The word here literally means out of line. How do you deal with those who are out of line? Uh, that's the word here. How does the church deal with those who are out of line, who are pretty consistently out of step with the rest of everybody else? Uh, he's, this is a military term. It's the soldier who was out of rank with the rest. Insubordinate. Um, didn't do his duty. Wouldn't hold to his commitment who was out of step with the rest. The ESV translated as idle. The NASB and the LSB translated as unruly. And then in other places in scripture, uh, we even see unruly being um, the choice. So the ESV translated idle, the NASB and the LSB translated as unruly. The NASB here being more uh, precise in its translation. But it makes sense, right? Because listen, the one who is out of step constantly or out of line, it, they can be out of step or out of line because of being idle. They're not going in the direction that everybody's going. They're constantly pulling to the side. Or they can be out of step because of deliberate action. Rebellion. And so they won't listen to the leader's instructions. They're disorderly. This is what he's exactly saying. It's a person who is out of order, but when they're out of order, it's so intertwined with idleness that the term idleness has been associated with the word that's used here in the Greek. Because if you think about it, it means if you have a rebellious attitude towards the church, then you tend not to be part of things. Right? I mean, that's just the pattern. You don't show up to the work days. You don't show up to the Bible studies, to the men's things, to the women's things, to the prayer times, to the, you fill in the blank. If you got this secret rebellious attitude towards the church, you just don't show up. You don't show up to things. And so this idleness is intertwined with the unruly. And so in both instances, everyone is heading this way. This is what it literally means. The leaders are leading this way. They are, everyone's trying to head in a direction. And yet this one is constantly getting out of line, out of line with the direction of everyone else. And so they show a, a level of not caring how it might affect the rest, right? This is this idleness. The, the, they, they show a level of not caring how their unruly behavior and attitude might affect everybody else in the church. 
And then they have maybe an angry, rebellious, rebellious contentious, which, uh, contentious heart, which inevitably leads to bitterness, always bitterness. And you start making decisions based on bitterness and, you don't, and, and you're blind to it. And then there's a critical heart and you don't see the effort of under others and then you grumble. And so this is the picture. This is the unruly. They're ungovernable, right? They won't be governed in this way. And so I think this is an important thing for us to see because 1 Corinthians, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn there in your Bibles if you can, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you look at verses 10 through 12, I just want to read them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. This is an important point here. Let me read starting in actually verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, turn to it and look. Verse 9, it says, we must not indulge. I'm sorry, that's verse 8. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were dismayed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he, what? Fall. And so what we understand here is that if you go, if you look at this context here, he's speaking of the Old Testament instructions to the believers. I want you to just look up at verse four real quick. Look up at verse four. They drank from the spiritual rock. And who was the rock? Christ. So listen now, the Israelites in the wilderness, who was with them? Who was with them? Christ. Christ was with them. And yet, they what? They grumbled in the wilderness. And all of them were taken out of the people of God. And all of them were destroyed, except for two who entered the promised land. And so you think about this. Christ is with who? With us as believers in Christ. Do you think that God still takes seriously grumbling? Christ was with them. That wasn't a different, this was not at some different time. Christ, these were God's people. Christ was with them. And because of their grumbling, God killed all of them and let Joshua and Caleb alone enter the promised land. Two. And so we, we must take this seriously. We wouldn't commit sexual immorality for everybody to know in the church, would we? Well, why would we grumble? God takes this seriously. And even if you move back to chapter nine, at the very end here in verse 24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, not 
but not uh, but only one receives the prize. So that so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. What Paul is saying there is I discipline myself. And what's the context? Well, verse ten starts or chapter ten starts with four, and then he goes into the grumbling of the Israelites. And so what he's saying, I think here is, I discipline myself so that this is not my attitude, the same that the Israelites had who were grumbling in the wilderness and were destroyed. And so we must discipline ourselves. Christ is with us, but God takes that very, very seriously. And most of them were taken out. In fact, all of them except two were taken out of the congregation for the health of the congregation. God does that. God is patient with grumblers and then eventually just takes them out of the congregation for the health and well-being of it. And here God destroyed them. And so God takes this very, very seriously. They were grumbling. You know what they didn't see? That God was providing manna for them. That God was with them. That God had taken them out of slavery and given them a strong, committed leader in Moses, that they were heading to the promised land (laughs) and they were grumbling. I mean, is that crazy? I remember when my seminary professor taught us these verses and he talked about our grumbling in response to his grading papers. And he said, how, much, how many of you, when you get back these sheets that are just full of red marks, grumble? Instead of saying, this professor has given his life to help me become the best minister and the best student of God's word that I could possibly be. I mean, when we grumble, we just don't see the whole picture, do we? And so this is what Paul is helping them to respond to. The unruly who think that they have a reason to be that way. And God will eventually just take them out of the congregation. And I'm glad that he does that for the sake of the body. And so this word here, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, go back to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The word here, the unruly, again, if you look up in the lexicons, it, is, it points to self-willed, rebellious, uncooperative, ungovernable, unmanageable, unpredictable, unsupportive, fickle, erratic, difficult, a disregard for instruction, distrust, proud. H.A. Ironside, a wonderful commentator, says they always want to run things to suit themselves. They have a splendid disposition as long as they can have everything their own way. Such people should be warned because they are a hindrance to God's blessing. That's what Paul is saying here. And so practically, this plays out in a number of different ways. And you you all know this. They have a bad attitude about serving and using their gifts. They're always doing you a favor. They have a bad attitude attitude about giving. Uh, Here we go. We're talking about this again. Right? They, have, they undermine the leadership. They, they, they don't treat each other right, the one another's. Uh, I mean, we just go down the list, right? And so 
As we presuppose that this is a biblical, healthy church, because this is who Paul is talking to, right? There is reason for an unbiblical, unhealthy, not even a true church uh, for, for people to, uh, to need to, to move away from that. But here, this is a true church made up of true believers, and they are sincerely trying to grow. And Paul here is speaking to how they deal with these people. Um, he is speaking to people not aware of how it affects everyone around them when they're unruly. Everyone knows, everyone kind of knows that they're that way. Um, it affects the culture of the church and they're constantly upset. It really stunts the, the growth and the effectiveness of the church and God wants them to be strong, healthy, stable, protected, and effective. So how is this church to respond to such a people? Well, one word, admonish. It means warn, warn with instruction. That's what the word admonish means. It's an imperative verb form. So Paul is commanding the church people, the body, to do this with one another. The unruly in the congregation, those who are in the body must warn with instruction must warn with instruction. These are the believer's responsibility. That means counsel about the avoidance or the cessation of this improper course or conduct. It's the same word that's used in verse 12 above, which is translated there as instruct. It's the word, as I said, where we get the concept of, or not the concept, but just the phraseology of nuthetic counseling. Biblical counseling is just what the Bible prescribes, but nuthetic counseling gives this idea of what it does. It's, it, it's the, the, it helps us to understand that word in the Greek, it means to, to bear on one's mind the truth for the purpose of repentance and change, right? That's what the idea means. And so it's sometimes in the Bible translated as instruction. Sometimes it's translated as warn. Sometimes it's, it's translated as admonish, but it's that, that idea instruct with the truth for the sake of warning and turning and, and changing. It's to put, it's to bear on one's mind. It's to reprove, rebuke, and exhort for the purpose of a changed life. And what's really interesting here is this word, the two root words that are put together to make up this word, it means literally then to place or to lay upon one's mind. That's what the word here that's being used means. You know what's interesting is the word repentance in the Greek. It includes the same root word of mind, but it means, but it includes another root word that means same, same mind. So repentance is having the same mind. In other words, what does repentance truly mean? It means having the same mind as God, agreeing with God, right? With your mind and with your life. It's saying the same thing that God says. That's what repentance is. So you see your sin for what it is, right? You see your sin for what it is, and you say the same thing about it that God says when before you didn't say what God said about it right? And so if you think about this, put this together here, it's what Paul is saying is place upon one's mind so that this person has a change of mind and has the mind, the same mind as God. It leads to repentance. 
admonish, warn, instruct, so that this leads to a repentance. That's the idea here. It's translated and warn in Colossians 1 and 2 Thessalonians 3. Warn. Warn about what? About their sin? Their way of thinking? Their attitude? Their patterns? Their actions? About what the word of God says? About how they're out of step? About how it affects others? About the potential consequences of their actions? About, the, about what God's word says and how to change? If you turn to 2 Thessalonians, just turn a couple pages to your right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. It says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you received from us. And so that word there is the same word unruly. And you see here in 2 Thessalonians how seriously God takes it. And that context is these brothers who were not working. But it's the same word. He says there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, stay away from them. Why? They infect you. They'll infect you. And so you do this, of course, with a heart of love. This is a heart of love. You want these people to truly change and to truly take heed and to truly repent. And you want to protect the church. And you want to help them grow. This is a heart of love. But so often, love is mistaken for not doing anything at all nowadays, isn't it? So it might not seem loving for you to do this. But you have to trust Paul's words here more than your own feelings. Okay? To not say anything to those is not helpful for them or for the church. And this is a protectant. This is how Paul in, in, ensures that this church will become what God wants it to be. So F.F. Bruce, he says of this particular teaching here in this section, the instruction which such persons required included a note, the instruction with which such persons required so the people who were doing this, what they required is a note of disapproval of their present conduct. They had to be told to mend their ways. And the community as a whole had an interest in setting them right. It says, he says, it was the community's reputation that was endangered by their irregular way of life. It must not be thought that the leaders were hypercritical in their attitude to such people. The whole community should disassociate itself in a practical manner from the discreditable course that they are pursuing. And so this is what they are to do. You love the individual, you, want, you love the church, and this is the encouragement. And so the question is for you, is this your way of dealing with the unruly in the church? Is this your way? Or have you abided by the culture's concept of love 
and you think that your best course of action is to say nothing. Maybe because you just say, well, I'll just let it be. Or maybe because you're afraid. Maybe because you're afraid of conflict or the consequences. Or let's just let the leader say it. Let's let them get the bad rap, right? Par for the course. No. You, it's actually selfish and self-protecting not to do this duty that Paul prescribes here. Not thinking of the individual and not thinking of the church. Paul knows what he's talking about here. Do you agree? Paul knows what he's talking about here. He's under divine inspiration. And this is exactly what he's saying. It's exactly. He, he wants this church to be everything that God wants it to be. And so if you see someone who is out of line, out of step with direction, bad attitude, etc., making unwise decisions in sin, won't be governed, the maverick, the gossip, the critical, the not committing, the tainted perception, the unthankful, the unloving, the grumbling, you don't just let it go and hope that it works out because that will infect the church and that will allow the person to continue down that path. Is it gonna be awkward? Sure. <laughs> but you gotta know your church and your God are behind you. Your church and your God are behind you, right? And so you need to admonish the unruly. You have to be so gripped by your conviction of the word of God that you do even what you don't wanna do sometimes because it's right, right? So there's a second group here and we'll just cover them and then we'll be done here. And it's the faint hearted. Verse 14. And we urge you brothers, admonish the idle and encourage the what? The faint hearted. So Paul summarizes the next group. What's the next group? The next group is the faint-hearted, and he summarizes this next group again with one word. And he summarizes the response with one word. Okay? So stay with it. We're almost done, and this is very, very important. So this group, the faint-hearted, maybe you feel that way after Paul's just recent instructions just a minute ago. And maybe now we're all in this category. Here, what this word means is small-souled, small-souled. It's the timid. I mean, that's plain and simple what, what this word means. It's the timid. How do you deal with the timid in the church? The small-souled, right? It's, there's, if you think about it, if the unruly are on the fringes, the small-souled are hidden in the middle, Right? They stay hidden in the middle. How do you deal with those who are hidden in the middle? They're timid. In some ways, they can consistently be dead weight. And that's the idea. And we can sympathize and we can empathize. But the idea is, remember, Paul wants this church to be steadfast, healthy, strong, trusting, Christ-like, stable, holy, Effective. So these people might be small-souled, but they can't stay that way. They might be timid, but they can't stay that way. We got to help them, right? And you may say, well, we need to be compassionate and loving. Absolutely. But that doesn't equate to giving approval to their distrust of God, 
right? And so here's what it is. It's loving to help them get there. It's compassionate to meet people where they are. And we don't give approval to where they're at in the sense that we want them to stay in that state. That's what Paul is saying here. We are to do something with the faint hearted. And the root of this is the distrust in God, right? It's a distrust in God. It's it's not those who do what Joshua said in Joshua chapter one, where God said, have I not commanded you? Be what? Strong and courageous. They're faint hearted. They fall over and faint at the slightest threat, right? And so this is what God says. You might say, God, well, let them be scared. It's okay. And God says, no, <laughs> I'm commanding them to trust me, right? And, and it's really can be a prideful thing, right? Because why? Isaiah 51, 12 says, I am he. I am he who comforts you. He says this, listen, and this seems like it's just, it, this doesn't seem like it makes any sense. Here's what God says. Who are you that you are afraid? Who are you? Who do you think you are that you're afraid? Wait a second, I never thought about it like that, right? Who are you that are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like rest? You think you can be afraid of that? Who, who are you to decide who the supreme authority is? Who are you not to trust me? And so God wants the small souled to grow, to, to grow. The word here is used as the only time it's used in the New Testament is right here. And it really, there's a Greek word that means the exact opposite. And what it, that word means is self-sufficient or self-confident. And so this person is the opposite. They have the eyes on their self and so they have no confidence. The person who is overly aware of their own inadequacies. I mean, we all get to that point, don't we? They just can't get moving. They won't take risks for the Lord. They're always anxious. They're always worried. They're always distressed about the future. They got a close kin. His name is Eeyore, right? <laughs> and there's examples that we've seen, right? Because in this book, it's the believers who were constantly worried about the believers who died. It's the ones who were so afraid that they missed the rapture, right? When Paul encourages them with truth and he helps them out of it. These are the people who have no boldness. They're not quick to act. They're afraid to get on the front lines. They're afraid of persecutions. They're afraid of opinions. They're afraid of labels. They're afraid to, 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 to put their self on the line for standing for truth. They're afraid of ministry or service. They're easily made afraid by, by potential conflict and evangelism. They're afraid of persecution, right? And so in order for the church to be strong, Paul says, here's what you must do with the small souled. We got, if we want the church to be healthy, strong, effective, if we want it to be stable and lasting, the small souled, we got to help them grow. So what does he say? He says, what we are to do is to what? Encourage them. These people need to be made feel like there's someone who counts in the Lord. It's not in themselves. You're not saying you're great, health, wealth, prosperity. Let's praise you. 
but who they are in Christ and who their God is and what God has done on their behalf. So Paul says to encourage them, this is another imperative. So guess what? You are commanded to encourage the small soul. Get them going. They can do it, right? You can do this. Encourage them, console them, cheer them up. Hey, why are you so down? Let's get moving. You know who our God is and what he's done for us and what he's called us to do and who you are in Christ. It literally means to speak alongside. I imagine that, you know, those movies where they're, they're training for the football team and there's a car and you're running alongside and the, the, the car's driving and keeping the pace, yelling out the window, come on, keep going, right? Run faster, work harder. You can do it. Remember what we're doing this for and who you are. And it's just like with the unruly, the charge to warn and instruct the unruly goes to everyone who is not in that category of being unruly. Well, in the same way, this command to help the timid goes to everybody who is not in that category of being the timid, right? And you're helping them to trust God's word to trust their worth, to trust their salvation, to trust his wisdom and his sovereignty, to listen and obey the word no matter how they feel, to participate in the church and its mission and God's commands and to trust doctrine and to stand firm and to be stable in the Lord. This is it. You ever have uh, a situation with your kids where you're like, and trying to get them going and, and it's not that they're maybe overly rebellious, but they're maybe timid or scared to trust you and obey. Come on, jump off the monkey bars. I'm going to catch you, right? When they don't do it, even though they might not seem as though they're being rebellious, their lack of trust, it, 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 all of a sudden you say, you're not obeying me. You're not listening to me. You're not trusting me, right? And so even though it's out of timidity, the truth of the matter still remains, this person is not trusting God. They are not listening to God's words and obeying in everything that he wants them to be. And so we are called to develop, to cultivate, to bring them along. We want them to be effective and stable. You know, this kind of timidity will lead to a very troubling Christian life. It just does. It leads to a, too much introspection. It leads to inactivity. It leads to instability. It leads to being led for your life by your feelings, doesn't it? It doesn't lead to knowing God more deeply through, through pain and trial and trust and risk. It doesn't lead to more of God. It leads to more of self. And most people want to stay this way. And because of that, they lack joy they lack love. They end up being loners. And God said, it's not good for man to be what? Alone. And so the, 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 we need to help them down the path. And so it's difficult for a church to grow deep in one direction if they're constantly having to stop and bring those people along. And Paul wants these people to be strong. And so you wanna tell them, who God is, that they can do it because of his indwelling spirit. You want to help them be motivated and inspired to experience the freedom of Christ and to look at the task at hand 
to serve their God. And so this is, this is the idea. Let me look, show you this verse and then we can be done here. First Thessalonians 2.12. Once again, and I showed you this before, but he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. There's the encouraged word. What? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Have you forgotten which kingdom you're in? Have you forgotten who your God is? We want to help these people along. And this is how we must do it. And so we got to obey Paul's commands here. And so let me ask you as we close here, are you doing this for the people in the church? Is this what you feel is your responsibility? To warn and instruct and to bear on one's mind for the unruly, for the ones who are constantly out of line or causing trouble or ungovernable or discontent or overtly critical or always having issues or always saying things or not going in the same direction as everybody else consistently. Maybe they're doing unwise things. They're living in sin. You have to know this is your job for them and for the church. And then secondly, are you inspiring, helping, encouraging, coming alongside, building up, motivating, even dragging if you have to, the faint-hearted, to get them growing and trusting the Lord so that they can be strong and stable and healthy and effective as well. That's our job. So let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you by your grace, by your mercy, by your kindness, and by your love to make these people this way, the way in which you describe here. For our church to be everything that you want it to be, that you call it to be. Lord, let this church be the, the strong and healthy and stable and effective church for your glory that's flourishing and you're using. Lord, we always know that there's gonna be problems and there's people and we gotta help them. And Lord, so I pray that we would heed your instruction and that this church would feel the responsibility and the weight upon them. And Lord, I pray that because of it, you would make this church and these believers everything that you desire for them to be in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.